I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. The world is hell-bent on trying to get to carbon neutrality. And we've done a pretty good job on the electric side, but we haven't really addressed the thermal side. And RNG remains the best solution available today for decarbonization of the scope one emissions from thermal combustion. Every community across the globe produces waste. This waste can come from landfills, decomposing food, animal manure, and wastewater sludge. As this waste decomposes, it emits natural gas, primarily composed of methane, which is a naturally occurring but very potent and harmful greenhouse gas. In fact, methane is nearly 30 times more potent at trapping heat in our atmosphere than is carbon dioxide. But renewable natural gas, or RNG, projects capture this methane before it harms our environment and repurposes it to create clean and reliable energy that is used to generate electricity, power our vehicles, heat our homes, cook our food, as well as many other productive purposes. So in this episode, Gil Jenkins and I sit down with Mike Bacchus, Executive Vice President at Amoresco, a leading renewable energy project developer, owner, and operator. Mike details the various RNG production pathways and revenue streams, discusses his views on RNG market growth drivers, and makes a compelling case for the essential role of RNG in the energy transition. We do go into the weeds of this episode, so we hope you enjoy it. Mike, welcome to Climate Positive. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you here. And why don't we start by, let's talk a little bit about your background. So you have over 30 years of experience in the energy industry. And I want to know what inspired you to sort of focus on renewable energy and energy efficiency very early on in that period and how you came to Amoresco as a founding member of the management team. I think Amoresco is what celebrating its 23rd birthday as a public company. I think I have that right. Yep. Give some Correct. sense of your background. You know, I randomly got into energy efficiency going back to my engineering school up at UMass Amherst, where a professor helped. He actually consulted for the DOE on the side. And he brought a few of us students into a system going out to customer sites to figure out ways to conserve energy through energy efficiency. So in 91, when I graduated, I actually went as a design engineer into the energy space. And my focus was to work on designing systems that would optimize the control of our customers' facilities while reducing energy consumption to save them cost. So... What the end result was, it was a win for the customer and a win for the environment. Leapfrog forward a little bit. In the late 90s, I had the opportunity to come work for George Sakalaris, who's, of course, the legend, the founder of Amaretto. Yeah, he is, exactly. I always say the godfather of our industry. That's right. And this was at a previous company. I worked for George for a number of years. And then in January 2000, George resigned his position as the CEO of this company. And I think he actually thought he was going to retire. A few weeks later, I got a phone call. It was George. And he said to me, he goes, I'm starting to annoy Kathy. She told me, go get a job. This is his wife. (laughs) So he decided he wanted to start up another company, but he wanted to do something special and different. And so myself and one other met with George over a burger and beers and a few bottles of wine over a number of weeks. And on cocktail napkins, George sketched out his dream, his vision, which would ultimately be Amoresco. As a matter of fact, if you're ever in town, you can visit with him. He still has the cocktail napkin. Uh, you know, you hear that. It's almost like a cliche, but actually a cocktail napkin. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, I really was. And, and that was his business plan, candidly. And the good news was George was really the funder of the capital to start the company up. So it was okay that the business plan was on cocktail habits. And his business plan had some simple objectives. It was to continue doing efficiency because in his mind, that was the cheapest form of renewable energy. First fuel. Yeah. And then use the cash flow from that those projects to is retain earnings to invest as equity into energy assets we would own and operate. And he felt that customers were going to be looking for others like us to take on the risk of owning and operating energy assets to supply them their needs without them getting involved in something that really wasn't core to them. He liked it because it would create a long-term recurring revenue that he felt over time would be very valuable to the market. And so randomly, our first project out the gate was to develop a 7.6 megawatt landfill gas to energy project in Chicopee, Mass. And this was before there was really any RPS programs in the country, or there was any real push for renewable energy. And the concept was, hey, instead of flaring this energy, this landfill gas, and wasting it, we're going to capture it. And we're going to develop a base load dispatchable resource that was considered renewable. And it could, at that time, could actually compete with brown power and price. Flash forward ahead, uh, Mass started to develop its first RPS. And we were one of the first contracts they signed to buy the green attributes from us to help with the financing of the plan. And the way we looked at this was it was a win for the environment and it was a win for our customers. And that jump-started our interest in developing more renewable energy supply projects. We kind of felt that green energy wave building, and we really want to be out in front of it. So when you ask the question, you know, how do we get into it, I think that's a bit of the story. And when we look at efficiency or and renewable energy, it's not only the right thing to do, but it's a win-win for our customers and the environment. So we became very passionate. We remain passionate in the business. And candidly, it doesn't feel like work. We really enjoy what we're doing. Best kind of work. And we're going to get in specifically. So your current role as EVP of distributed generation systems with a huge focus on renewable natural gas, RNG, really the thing we want to talk to you in this episode. Give us just a quick sense of your role today. And then we're going to jump really into the discussion around RNG. Well, at the end of the day, we got into biogas before most. We started developing, as I mentioned, our first biogas plant at Chicopee back in 2000, 2001. So we've been actually in this space for 22 plus years. We developed our first RNG plant in 2008. We went commercial with it in 2010. So we've been operating RNG facilities now for 13 years. And my role really was to lead the effort to build the business up from the ground up. I was, you know, as I mentioned from the very beginning and develop a group that was completely focused on developing biogas projects and biogas projects have evolved. When we first started doing it, it was primarily electric generation as well as some direct use projects like the BMW project you might've heard. We just announced it, it reached its 20th year of operation. And BMW just announced that they extended it for another eight years of the partnership. Fantastic. Yeah, and I'll tell you, that continues to be one of the marquee projects in the industry. It's a 10-mile pipeline. At one point, it was serving up with the 60% of the energy needs of BMW 
at that facility. That facility is their largest manufacturing plant in the world. They produce, I believe, about 1,500 new cars per day. And what it gives them, it gave them cost savings. It gave them security of supply, right? Because they had now their own direct energy resource. It gave them some uh, resiliency through the cogeneration plants they had to use this fuel. And it made them sustainable. So when you look at the whole picture, it was a really cool project for them that checked all the boxes. And so that just kind of continued to grow. And now here we are today. We have probably one of the largest portfolios of assets that were organically developed. If you look at a lot of the companies in the industry now, they're a culmination of acquisitions. Yep. As I say, it's real easy to go out with a checkbook and buy a bunch of assets. It's a lot harder to actually develop these projects from the greenfield up. And every one of our projects today, we've done so. Excellent. So you've been in this space since, certainly Amoresco has since 2008, as you mentioned. We are more recent entrants into it. We partnered with you recently to finance a portfolio of RNG facilities, landfill and wastewater facilities across a few locations here in the U.S., but I feel like maybe many of our listeners don't really have a great understanding of what renewable natural gas is. I think we all pretty much know what natural gas is, you know, primarily methane. That is a greenhouse gas. It's 28 times more potent at trapping heat, certainly in the near term, than carbon dioxide. So tell us what is renewable natural gas specifically, and how can we be sure that it's renewable? Sure. Well, look, renewable natural gas is a term that's used to describe biogas that has been upgraded for use in place of fossil natural gas. The biogas used to produce RNG comes from a variety of sources. Municipal solid waste landfills, digesters at wastewater treatment facilities, livestock farms, food production, and organic waste management operations. RNG is composed of biogenic carbon, and this is important to denote. So again, RNG is composed of biogenic carbon, and what that means is that any emissions released from combustion collection or transportation of this RNG is already in the environment. So under current GHG reporting protocols, CO2 emissions from RNG are treated as carbon neutral, and in some cases, carbon negative. This is unlike the natural gas that we're accustomed to, where we voluntarily drill for and extract from the earth, which is a thermogenic methane, not biogenic. Mm-hmm. And what this means is that this is produced deep within the earth when organic material is degraded by the earth's heat. So extracting this gas, which is naturally sequestered, introduces brand new carbon to our atmosphere, unlike RNG, which is biogenic, is already in the atmosphere. Gotcha. So you're taking gas that's already being emitted into the atmosphere, but you're converting it into a more useful form. And so then what does it ultimately, what is it used for? Well, I mean, once we get it into the pipe, you can use it for anything you would normally use natural gas for. So whether it's heating your home, fueling it for a CNG vehicles, fuel for cogeneration plants, you name it. It can be used as a raw feedstock to create green hydrogen. Mm-hmm. There's a number of uses for the product. And by the way, I want to stress, this is one of the many benefits of this green product over electrification in that you don't have to change your end-use devices. So if for that retiree that has a natural gas stove, 
That stove stays in place and you just fuel it with this biogenic RNG. Unlike electrification, that will require that gas stove to be tossed and for that retiree to go into their bank account and buy a brand new electric stove. And that's why when you look at cost per ton reduced, electrification can be five to eight hundred dollars per ton of CO2 reduced compared to RNG, which is you know two, three hundred dollars per ton. Right. I believe New York State actually just banned natural gas in new homes and new devices being sold in the state. But using renewable natural gas would mitigate those concerns, right? You wouldn't necessarily have to ban new facilities and new products if you could reliably and credibly utilize renewable natural gas as the feedstock for these sorts of products, right? Correct. And not for this discussion, but I think you're aware of the Ninth Circuit Court just overturned, I think, Berkeley trying to do the same. So I think it's going to be interesting how this gets handled. I'm not sure that you're going to be able to see a lot of these municipals issuing those kind of bans. Right. Well, if we could walk through each of the production pathways for the different types of renewable natural gas, you mentioned a few already. But first, I want to start with landfill gas, which I believe is the dominant source of RNG today. Mm-hmm. Just talk to us about you know where this gas comes from, how it's collected, and kind of the emission profile and cost structure of this production pathway. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's ultimately created by society, right? Society creates waste. That waste gets disposed of at the landfill, municipal solid waste. And over time, through an anaerobic process, you know, you ultimately, this biogas is a byproduct of the decomposition of the waste. And by law, if the landfill is over a certain size, I think it's 2.7 million tons of waste in place. They have to collect and destruct that gas. And what that means is that they will drill a series of wells deep into the landfill. They'll connect those wells with a common header. And they'll apply a slight vacuum on it to pull this gas up from the hill and deliver it either to a flare or, in our case, to a project that we can then take and process into a usable form of energy. Landfill gas RNG projects is typically the lowest cost of RNG because it has a great quantity. So when you amortize the capital cost to convert this gas to a usable form of energy over many BTUs, it's much lower cost than say dairy or ag projects. CARB, as you know, has figured out how to calculate what they believe is from the wellhead to the burner tip, what the carbon intensity is. And typically landfills run around a 40, 45 CI score compared to others that are lower. On got it. Got it. And it's an interesting personal story. I actually visited the Gramacho landfill in Brazil a very long time ago. Just for fun? Just Dad, for or? fun. That's what I do on my vacations. Right. And um, it's gigantic. And they actually drill for natural gas there. And I believe it's actually used in enhanced oil recovery to some extent and probably some other uses. But it was sure. a very fascinating experience. Well, I will say I'm not picking on other countries. The states have done a great job where our landfills here go through an intensive process on liners and cover, and it's really done to try to prevent the migration of the gas. In other countries, that's not necessarily the case. It truly can be viewed as dumps where stuff is just dumped over, lines are questionable, they don't do daily cover, and this methane just kind of gets emitted to the environment. Right, but you're saying otherwise, even those well-controlled landfills, it's going to get flared, which is... Not great for the methane emissions. So we could put... Well, it's a waste of energy. Yes. The methane's already in the environment. It's biogenic. So why not 
take it and repurpose it for something else. And, you know, this kind of fits, too, into uh, Biden's initiative on the EJ side. A lot of these landfills were permitted in, in communities uh, a long time ago that are categorized as uh, environmental justice communities. And instead of flaring the gas at those landfills and creating local emissions, you capture it and you essentially shut the flare down, in essence, and clean it up and putting it into a pipe and send it off to displace fossil fuel. So the local community not only benefits from the capital investment into the, you know, the economic benefit of investing capital in the region and putting people to work to build and operate, but it also improves the local equality. That's great. And do these sorts of projects that are in EJ communities, are they eligible for the energy communities tax credit or is that still being worked out? So there's something still, we're still waiting for some guidance on treasury and a whole litany of things. Because <laughs> as you can imagine, when they try to push that through, it was a rush to the finish line. There's a few things that need to be clarified. So we're godly optimistic. There'll be some things in there to help incentivize these projects to happen because these projects are very capital intensive. So if you don't get some subsidies, they can be challenged to make them economic. But if things go the right way, then you'll see some of the small projects that might have been challenged actually getting developed because of the IRA. Got it. So now let's move to dairy or agricultural waste as the feedstock for this gas. Tell us how this process works. Well, I mean, again, you've got in many cases uh, dairy farms that have the animal waste in open lagoons. Theoretically, the methane can be emitted. And instead of leaving it there, you're putting it into a digester, if you would, a big tank that over time, again, breaks the waste down. And one of the byproducts is biogas. And then, of course, you have solids that can be used for fertilizer, et cetera. And you capture this biogas. It typically has a little bit of different quality content than landfill gas. And it right now currently has a much better CI score on the carb. It's typically 250 to 400 CI. The challenge with dairy projects is they're typically a lot smaller than landfill projects. And so right now they're feasible because they get a higher value for the LCFS. And that has come off quite a bit, making some of these projects more challenging. Because as I mentioned on landfills, when you have a lot more volume to spread your CapEx over to amortize it, you can accept a lower rate for the attribute. These projects don't generate as much, so they're CapEx heavy. And their cost of generation is a lot more than, say, a landfill project. They need a higher rate. And as you know, I think we've seen the LCFS value for these folks drop in the 250 range. It's down to, I think, 88, three bucks a ton. And that has a material impact on the capital cost. Got it. So the dairy projects have a more challenging cost structure, just given the size relative to the landfill projects, but a higher carbon capture or mitigation intensity, it seems, than those projects? Currently, it's categorized as ES. There is some language in there that could force them to lose some of the benefit if CARB moves to remove the credits they get for avoided emissions, which could then ultimately potentially put their CI at, at the landfill CI. We'll see how that ends up. Got it. So you've already gone into a few acronyms that some folks may not be familiar with. Renewable identification numbers or RINs, which are at the federal level and are environmental attributes that certain projects are eligible to monetize. And also the low carbon fuel standard or LCFS, which is right now primarily in California, although other states are considering 
implementing their own LCFS standards as well. Just talk to us about these two different programs and how they allow projects to generate additional revenue that make them more economically viable. Well, I mean, the RFS program has been around for a bit, promulgated under the Clean Air Act. It ultimately is a federal program, whereas the LCFS is a state program. Obviously, the one that's been generating the most uh, attention is California's LCFS program. That's where most of the gas goes. What these programs allow developers to do is stack the revenue streams. If we were just selling this renewable gas at brown pricing, none of these projects would happen. They're too capital intensive. And where brown pricing is, it wouldn't be economic. But if you take the approach that brown is no longer acceptable, that you've got to go green. We'll talk about that later as we compare it to, say, solar and such and wind. The feds created this RFS program that required obligated parties to have to incorporate a certain amount of renewable fuel into their overall portfolio. And they can accomplish that by buying the gas, the screen gas, or the RITs. And in our case, for landfills, for example, and ag, you know, we generate D3 RITs. There's a number of different D categories that I can get. I won't get into the weeds about, but essentially it breaks down to the fuel pathway. The fuel pathway is generally made up of three critical components, which is feedstock, production, process, and fuel type. Each combination of three components is a separate fuel pathway, and qualifying fuel pathways assign one or more decodes, representing the type of renewable identification number it is. Each decode has a different renewable volume obligation requirement, RBO, and different price points. So, for example, RNG created from landfills and wastewater treatment plants generate a D3 rent, cellulosic, while organic diversion generates a D5 rent. And these different rents have different values that get published each day that can be traded. You know, in terms of how they help make it work. And the value is based on how carbon mitigating each pathway is, right? That's what the pricing is based on? Well, the value ultimately is created by, you know, if you have a supply and demand. So, you know, you have demand requirements are to meet the RVO, whatever set by EPA, and how much supply is out there. And if supply is short compared to demand, prices will spike. If there's an oversupply, prices will come off. And that's why everyone's waiting to June 14th to see where the EPA sets the RVO. Currently, as it stands, the market believes that we're in an oversupply condition because they set the RVO too low. So that's why you see D3 rents, for example, trading at you know buck ninety-five and two bucks a rent. The industry is godly optimistic. The EPA recognizes this and will hopefully increase the RVO final RVO numbers uh, come June. We will see, obviously. But when getting back to how you make these projects work by stacking these revenue streams. You've got typically the brown value for the gas, say three to four dollars in MMBTU. You've got the RIN value, which fluctuates based on the range of producing. In the case of cellulosic, right now it's about a dollar ninety-six a RIN, which equates to about twenty-two, twenty-three dollars in MMBTU on a gross basis. And then the third is the state value, the LCFS credit for California, where it's trading currently at eighty-two dollars per ton. It's really off its high. And when you translate that into a dollar per MMBTU, it's a function of where's the gas coming from. In the case of landfill, the conversion brings it to $3.66 an MMBTU. If it was a dairy project, it'd be about $25 an MMBTU. 
So if you stack it, your total revenue stream is going to be a combination of the brown, the REN, and the LCFS. So in the case of a landfill on a gross basis, you can see somewhere on a gross basis of about 27, 30, 30 plus dollars in MMBTU. I've never heard RINs described in such detail and clarity. Thank you for that. And complex, but I know we're in the policy ways, but one quick follow-up. You mentioned IRA earlier. So other policies that uh, are potentially further drivers for biogas, RNG. Am I right to understand that biogas now qualifies for the investment tax credit on the same level as other technologies or something never had before? If true, could you talk about what you think that means from a growth perspective and capital stacking perspective? Well, while we believe it will, we do think Treasury needs to come out with a, a lot more guidance on the length. For example, if you read it for the ITC, it can be read that the owner of the cleanup system has to also own the fuel supply side, the digesters. Now, that works if you're a developer that's doing dairy and you own the digester and the gas cleanup system. However, if it's a landfill project and you don't own the gas collection system, which is more times the case, you now have a different owner. So you have the landfill owner and you have the developer. And there's a question of, you know, does that qualify? So while we're cautiously optimistic, Treasury will try to follow the lead of clarification to the benefit of the industry. Because remember, the intent of IRA is to get more of these projects developed and built. That's right. We really still need some guidance on that. Right. Yeah, there are two other large sources of RNG, food waste, wastewater. Could you just briefly detail how those processes work and then we can move into customers? Yeah, I mean, they're similar type. They use the, uh, typically anaerobic digesters to break down the waste material. And, you know, same thing, you get gas generated, the biogas, and different quality constituents, right? And so, for example, landfills, your B2 content is 45% methane, maybe, whereas a wastewater treatment plant, it could be upwards of 60 plus percent. So there is some nuances about the gas. It is pre-study, you know, it has typically the wastewater treatment plants have a slower growth profile, but are very consistent, usually. And it gets developed the same way, as with organic as well. The biogas comes off the digesters, you put it into whatever the beneficiaries project is, and you create energy. And the big difference, I think, on the wastewater treatment plant projects, those typically would generate the D3 or cellulosic red, and on the organic diversion, those would be D5s, so different price points. One of the challenges on the organic diversion is for it to be really successful, I think, and take off, which we think it will at some point, you're going to need a little bit of a stick. You're going to need legislation in place across the country that mandates organic diversion. And if that happens, then you'll start seeing uh, more and more of these projects be successful. If it's voluntary, it can be challenging because on a voluntary basis, for example, if you're in a state that doesn't have a requirement, some of that organic waste could be going as feed to animal farms. And they get most of it zero to big feed. They'll just take it. Whereas if it's organic diversion, there might be a need to charge them for that tipping fee. And so if you're the folks disposing of that organic waste, typically you're going to go where it's free versus paying for the disposal. 
Climate Positive is produced by Hassi, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit Hassi.com. I want to turn to customers that are driving the demand for these projects and products. You know, many companies, universities, utilities, municipalities, other public sector entities have made net zero targets, have set net zero targets to reduce their, especially scope one emissions, which are relevant in this case. So how can RNG help these entities achieve their net zero targets? Well, let me expand on a little bit beyond your question, because I actually happen to think the real growth in our industry is not the transportation sector. I think at the end of the day, it's going to be in the non-transportation sector. Right now, the transportation sector it's on a great growth curve. It's doing well. But the non-transportation sector is 440 times the size of the transportation sector. So if you look at the expansion of the addressable market, that's where it's going to head. And why is that? Well, as you point out, the world is hell-bent on trying to get to carbon neutrality. And we've done a pretty good job on the electric side, but we haven't really addressed the thermal side. And RNG remains the best solution available today for decarbonization of the scope one emissions from thermal combustion. So if you think about a, just, just take the university. The university is trying to not only reduce its cost and become sustainable, but we're also trying to address resiliency challenges. So what we're finding is some of these different customers like universities and mission critical facilities, they're putting integrated microgrids in to be able to cut themselves off from the utilities from the utility go down. But they're trying to do it in a sustainable way. Well, to have the level of resiliency you need to address the severity of storms that are taking utilities offline, you ultimately need baseload dispatchable energy. And intermittent resources like solar and wind, even with storage, will not give them the level of resiliency they need. And that right now, that level is typically done through natural gas. So RNG can replace that natural gas as a baseload dispatchable renewable fuel that can be there for that microgrid to deliver resiliency and to do it in a sustainable manner. And that's huge for a client. That's a great point. And so your view is that using RNG for electricity generation really is going to be a much larger growth driver for this RNG market than using it in transportation fuel for cars and other fleet vehicles that these companies, entities have, right? I think two prime reasons, if you were, two reasons for it. It's what I just said about, you know, the fact of using it to help with resiliency and sustainability. But I also think it's the electrification side of the equation. So as you guys know, this country and candidly, the world is trying to electrify in a big way. But what people fail to realize is that just because there's no emissions off the tailpipe, it doesn't mean it's green. And if you look at the United States, I think it's about 60% of all our generation is actually non-renewable. So even though you're getting this electricity and it's not necessarily creating a tailpipe emission, it's not completely green. And that's why you're seeing this administration realize, wow, if we electrify, think about this, if we start electrifying everything, our load requirements are going to go up. And so how do we address that? What baseload dispatchable is available that we can put in place immediately to address it? It's actually natural gas. 
So I would argue that as we electrify, the grid could actually get dirtier until potentially you bring more nukes on, which was many, many years ago. So how do you address that? Well, you do what this administration is doing and you try to incentivize people to drive biofuels to electric generation so that you can create the green electricity under a baseload dispatchable unit that can serve the growth of electrification. So I think when I think of the growth of RNG, I go back to the real growth will be in the non-transportation sector that is more than 400 times that of the transportation sector. And it's randomly going to be driven by, I think, the customers looking to deal with sustainability on the thermal side and the desire to electrify. That's a good segue. You sort of alluded to the both the harmony and the perceived tension between the move to electrification and the need for renewable thermal carbon neutral sources. I have to ask, it strikes me that there is a small but noisy band of what's called political advocacy groups that have really made some spurious claims about the greenwashing aspects of biogas and RNG as operators and folks that are developing it, of course. So, you know, high level, you think you made some of these points indirectly, but what do critics get so wrong when they fail to understand the carbon benefit and the resiliency and utility benefit of RNG? I've been dealing with it because I think part of the challenge is, and as an industry, by the way, the RNG coalition and others are dealing with it. And that's really about education. Because what happens is they hear natural gas in the work and they think all of a sudden it's dirty, right? And I've actually had, we've been on the Hill talking to different legislative folks to try to educate them. And they said, why the hell did you guys name it renewable natural gas? Because just that word in there, you know, seems to bring a lot of, concerns by folks out. I think what critics are missing is a number of things that, again, RNG is biogenic. It's in the environment whether you use it or not. So instead of wasting it, repurpose it. Electrification, I mentioned it earlier, it's only as clean as what is making the electricity. All these folks think it's green. It's 100% green. It's not. 60%, as I said, of our generation in the U.S. is non-renewable. And as I said earlier, as great as intermittent renewable resources are, and Amoresco in particular, we're big fans of it. We're one of the largest solar developers in the country. We do a fair bit of wind. We love that stuff. I mean, we're building battery projects integrated with these different resources across the country, across the world. We love that stuff. But it still will not deliver the level of resiliency needed or at the level of a baseload dispatchable resource of RNG. What it gets down to is, If we really, as society, want to reach carbon neutrality, all technologies need to remain on the table. You can't exclude any. We won't get there. And RG is one of those technologies that's readily available today to help address our carbon challenges. So I I think the biggest thing is in education for those that don't know enough about what RG really is. Great. And you mentioned, you know, Amoresco is a big developer of wind, solar, storage. So you're in those markets every day. What analogy would you make with regard to RNG and those markets? You know, are we with RNG today where we were with solar 10 years ago? Or how should we view RNG and the maturation of that market relative to solar and wind, which are, you know, becoming more mature markets now? Great question. When we first started developing solar projects, the cost per watt was 
tremendous, right? And in the last 10 years for solar and storage, we've seen the cost of these products go down a fair bit and get to a point where you can actually compete with ground power. RNG is, is very similar in the sense that it was a very small, nascent space. And because it wasn't great visibility on the product in terms of the sale to customers in you know, the long term, you didn't have a lot of investment into improving technologies and supply chain efficiencies. Now, the industry is starting to really get a lot of attention from Wall Street and from customers. And what we're seeing is now all of a sudden a lot more capital being deployed in the space to make it more efficient, improve the technology. So I think what I would say is as an analogy, I think what we'll see over time is like solar and storage and wind to some extent, we'll see a lot more RNG being developed. We'll see costs come down and see technology and equipment become more efficient. Excellent. Well, it's been really great, Mike. Uh, I've learned a lot myself during this discussion. But before we go, we have the hot seat. So we ask for your immediate reactions to the following statements. The hardest decision I ever made is? Oh, personally? Or professionally, as you like. You know, look, there's been a lot of hard decisions over the last 20 years, but I think the hardest one, especially as a young fellow coming out of college and all that, I think that one of the hardest was to throw caution to the wind and help start up Amoresco. At a time when the NASDAQ crashed, right, with the bubble bursting in the dot-com industry, and the economy had slowed down a big way. And it was apparent we were heading towards a recession. And we had our fearless leader, George, believe that we could provide this space something special, something unique that people would want to buy. But it was definitely a hard decision because we're leaving a good company and doing a startup that didn't know if it would make it. I mean, most companies fail within the first five years. So I, I think that was probably one of the hardest decisions I had to make early on in my career. Well, ultimately a good one too. One thing I've changed my mind on is? That's a hard question. I think that no project is uh, not worth chasing. I mean, one of the challenges I think is every time we see a project, we want to go after it because we're very competitive and very aggressive. And I think over time you realize, you know, sometimes you have to walk away from some stuff. So I think that's probably uh, one of the things we've changed. And part of it is when you start a young company, you try to keep the place alive and you're chasing everything you can under the sun to create cash flow. I think as we've matured, and we're still a young company, but I think as we've matured, we've become a little bit more disciplined in what we go after. Makes sense. The person or persons I've learned the most from are? So over the years, I've learned from many people. Like all my parents, they've all influenced me in different ways. And one thing I try to do is be a bit of a sponge when I'm around so many intelligent people. But I would say just in terms of recent times, I would say at my time in Amoresco, there are two people in particular I learned the most from. The first being Dave Corson. Dave Corson is part of our founding management team. And while Dave is a lawyer by education and a general counsel, I think I never really consider him a practicing attorney. He has a very strong business acumen and a fantastic knowledge of structuring deals. As a young person, I spent the last 20 years hopping around the country weekly, developing all these different energy assets. And I just learned a great amount from Dave. And I think today I hold an honorary law degree from the Corson School of Law. So Dave was very 
does Dave endorse such a qualification? Yeah, I think he would like to charge me for it, but uh, <laughs> I'm not going to pay him for it. I think the second most influential person, of course, for me, and quite frankly, for the many in the industry, is someone who I continue to admire as a great mentor, and that's our founder, uh, George Sakalaris. I mean, look, George has taught me many, many things in, in nearly the 30 years I've worked for him. I've been with George a long time. But some of the core lessons that I would say the takeaway for me is very simple, simplistically is, one, you have to have a very strong work ethic and be persistent in your endeavor with a sense of urgency. Our job is 24 hours a day, seven days per week. There's no rest. And if not, I can tell you right now, you would not survive working for George. And this came from his experience as a young kid that came to America as an immigrant, worked as a short cook to put himself through college, and rose through the ranks through perseverance to become recognized as a pioneer in the energy renaissance we're experiencing today. You know, he always told me, don't set out official ceilings. Anything's attainable if you want it bad enough. And I think the biggest thing, when we started out, we were small, right? And he told us, he said, look, don't think anyone is any better than us. When we first started out, many of us were concerned that we were competing with the big companies, the corporations. And it was just three, four of us at the beginning, right? And after all, we also have very limited resources, financial resources. But George took a different tack. He explained, hey, look, the executives of these large corporations were not any better. And if we're hungrier than them, because we're fighting to survive and grow, we'll figure a way to get it done. And it's funny, looking back, you think about how this company got started. It was a $3 million equity investment from George and some debt as well. And here we are today, I think our market cap's about, you know, a little over $2 billion. He was right. And so I think, you know, those two people have had the biggest impact on me professionally in the last few years here at MRSCO. Fantastic. I had the pleasure of meeting George at the Paris Island ribbon cutting that we're proud to be a co-investor with in Amoresco. And he's just a force of nature and a ferocious, engaging guy by reputation, but we meet him in person. He's a magnetic personality. So I always say, look, he's an animal. The reality is George will bury us all. <laughs> I love that. He'll be the last guy standing. <laughs> awesome. A few more open-ended. These are not fill in the blank, but First thing comes to mind, brief and go to the point. So you're an engineer, so I hope this is a fun question. If you could time travel to any point in history to witness a breakthrough moment, uh, particularly in energy innovation, where and when would you go and then why? Hmm. Well, when I think of time travel in in history, I think going backwards in time, and I, I would actually suggest that I'm not sure I would necessarily want to go back in time. I would actually want to leap forward and witness the innovation that I know we're on the cusp of. I think the next decade of our industry is going to be amazing. I think the energy space is going through a renaissance. And I'm hoping that I have the ability to stick around and see it because I think it's going to be pretty special. The strides that our space has made in the last decade and going forward is exponential. And it just keeps up picking up a bigger head of steam. So I would love to leap forward ahead and see where we are in another decade. Quickly, and you sort of mentioned one of these, but do you have a favorite analogy or or idiom or saying about business or policymaking that isn't throw caution to the wind that has stayed with you and you find yourself still saying after all these years? You know, in terms of analogy, one of the things I would say, and I try to do that with my kids, is that I would suggest that sports 
in any form lends itself well to preparing you for your work life in general, energy space, any space you go into. Because I think it teaches you to compete. It shows that practice and preparation will make it better. And in many cases, uh, how to work on a team and how to accept loss, but leverage that experience to drive yourself to learn from that loss and become better. I think that's something I would say is a little bit of an analogy to business. Okay, final question. As we ask all our guests, fill in the blank. To me, climate positive means? Climate positive means going beyond net zero carbon emissions to create an environmental benefit by removing additional carbon from the environment. You know, it's one thing to be status quo. It's another thing to take it to a different level and go beyond your requirements. And I think if we see more and more organizations and people doing that, we'll reach our climate objectives in short order. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Mike. This has been a really great conversation. Really appreciate your time and look forward to talking again sometime. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. This really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at Hasse.com. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.